You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast. This episode presented by Youth and Young Adults Minister, Kirk McKenzie. lovely wife Kate. We're both CMS missionaries in the Northern Territory based in Darwin. It's been our pleasure and privilege to be partners with St John's Diamond Creek in all the time that we've been here in the Territory going back to 2011. Normally as you many of you know we work with remote church leaders to think about how they can um, be sharing the gospel in their own languages and in their own communities. It involves a lot of training, a lot of travel, so we can sit with leaders to think together about um, the needs they have. In this COVID times, that's changed quite a lot. Mm. There's been no travel because of the lockdown of biosecurity zones, and um, we are just so thankful to God that, that those measures have been successful and that the COVID virus um, didn't get into any of the communities to cause real damage. So we're thankful to God for your prayers and for God's mercy in that. Um, during this time, of course, uh, we've been able to use the time well doing um, some more long-term projects. One of them has been to think through um, a project we're calling Virtual Diocese and how do we actually um, share resources and get some of the resources for um, sharing the gospel online, especially as more and more of the communities now do have mobile phone towers and internet access of some degree. And another thing I've been able to continue doing has been the work in the healing group ministry. And uh, a project I've recently been working on uh, is to do with biblical literacy and the use of scripture in churches, uh, designed uh, with hopefully looking at ways to grow the uh, grow um, people's understanding of the Bible. And uh, that's pretty exciting. So we're here to share the Bible with you today. We're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I'm going to read from the Creole Bible now, which is a language we work in here in the Territory. While you jinki patna, light and dark bala can't jit on same time. And same way, like a jatu, you can't go and mix them up myself, got them that lot people who no more leg in Jesus Christ. Dumaji gubala and no gubala, can't jit on one bala. Jesus Christ and Satan 
they probably won lion bala, can't jin on friend gija. And that lot of people who believe like in Jesus Christ can't have the same one mind like that lot of people who no more believe like him. And that sacred one place like a God can't jit on got him that lot dreaming. Well, you more cheeky, but nah. We know that sacred one place like that libel one God. Then would you wear God jit on that on now that sacred one place like him. Hello, my name's Kirk, and I'm going to have a chat about that particular passage. Cool to hear it in Creole. Uh, I'm going to stick to the English translation myself. It's kind of my uh, expertise. Um, but yeah, thank you to Tavis and Kate for bringing us the Bible reading in both those languages. Now, if you're watching and you're not at this point in your life a follower of Jesus, you're checking him out, you're investigating Christianity, then I, firstly, welcome, great to have you with us. But I wouldn't blame you for thinking, round about now, should I be turning off? Like, if we just did a quick service, surface analysis of the passage that we've looked at today, you go, hang on, if I'm in the category of unbeliever, I think I might just have been described as wicked, in darkness, unclean, and contaminated. Like, do these Christian people really want me around? Like, do they want me watching their service? Well, let me assure you that we do, and we don't think of you in that particular way. And if you stick around, I'll explain why and, and how all that works. Now, if you're watching and you're a Christian, you might be thinking, oh, is it time to set up a Christian bubble? This is that idea that you push out anyone who is not... a who doesn't believe the same thing as you from your social circle. So you're only friends with people who are like church people. You unfriend anyone on social media who's not a fellow Christian. You pull your kids out of public school. You exile family members who don't turn up to life group one too many times. Uh, you go to your car. And you know how you preset all those radio stations to the different buttons in your car? Well, you make sure they're all set to Light FM. Uh, if you're not in Melbourne, that's the Christian radio station in Melbourne. Uh, you only vote for people who you've got video evidence that they've belted out Hillsong at their local church. Uh, at Halloween time, instead of doing trick-or-treating, you ritually burn Harry Potter books in your backyard. When it comes to dating, it's Christian-only dating websites for you. And if you ever get a custom T-shirt made, it'll say something like, if you don't love Jesus, leave me alone! Christian bubble time, because if we, again, if we just look at surface level uh, reading of today's passage, it seems like Christians good, unbelievers bad, social distancing the whole time, not just during the pandemic. Now, I've got to say, no, please don't do anything I've just said. That's not what's going on, Christians. Don't do that. And if you stick around, I'll explain why. Here's the thing. We don't really pick up any book and just open at random, read something at random without looking at the context, without looking what came before, without, without looking what came after, and just knowing a, a bit about what the book's on about in general. And if we were to learn a little bit about the authors of the book of 2 Corinthians, this section of the New Testament we're looking at in our current series, we'd find out that the authors are Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul's like the senior, he's the master. Timothy's like the apprentice, he's learning from Paul. So certainly we find that Paul's voice is the loudest. He's kind of the main author. But the letter is from Timothy as well. And so these two guys have written a few things together. 
and we've got some biographical information about them as well. And if we look at all that stuff and we put it together, and I've done that for you if you haven't done it yourself, um, then we'll see that they've spent a lot of their life and they've sacrificed a lot in their life in order to take the good news of Jesus to unbelievers. That's right, they've traveled the world taking the good news about Jesus to people who don't believe in Jesus. And in fact, just earlier in this chapter that we're looking at today, they've listed some of the things they've endured in order to be able to do that. They say that we've endured troubles, hardship, distress, beatings, imprisonment, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. In fact, so committed were they to sharing the good news of Jesus with people who didn't know him, that at one point they were going to a particularly hardcore Jewish community that were really strict on the Jewish customs and didn't want to talk to anyone who didn't do the same thing, that Timothy went ahead and got circumcised so that they would be ready to accept what he had to say. I mean, talk about put you, putting your body on the line, like literally. These are not the actions of people who seem to be ready to be locking themselves into a Christian bubble. The exact opposite. And what's more, the good news that they're sharing is about Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus is the guy who after he was whipped and beaten, was nailed to a cross through his wrists and through his feet. And while he was on that cross about to die, the crowd who had organized his execution was hurling abuse at him and mocking him. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been tempted before I died just to, to give something back. You know, if I could still use my middle finger to raise it in their general direction or to say some sort of abuse back, just to give them something back. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus spoke words of forgiveness over the crowd that was abusing him and mocking him as he died. That's the Jesus that Paul and Timothy were sharing. They were telling people about the Jesus who died so that people who did not believe in him had the opportunity to change their mind and enter a loving relationship with God the Father. These are not the actions of people who wanted to be socially distant from unbelievers. These are the actions of people who loved unbelievers deeply, passionately. They demonstrated it in word and action. So when we come to today's passage, it's fair to ask though, what's the deal? Because there's a bunch of verses in here that seem to be encouraging separation between people who follow Jesus and people who don't. But what I'm going to say today is as we dig into it and we look into it a bit more detail, it becomes clear that it's not a general statement and there's something a bit more specific going on. So let's get stuck into a few verses and it should become a bit more clear. So the first verse that we looked at in today's passage is verse 14. And it says this, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the word yoke is not referring to that yellowy bit in the middle of an egg. It's referring to this thing. On your screen, you should be seeing a picture of a yoke. It's a, a contraption that farmers found very useful, particularly before the days of machinery. They're still used these days if, you don't, if farmers don't have access to tractors and that sort of stuff. But basically what you would do is you would use a yoke, you'd attach it to a big animal that would help you in farming. So an ox or a bull, something like that. You'd attach it to the animal 
and then you'd attach your plow to the back of it and it would help you plow your field. And then what you could also do is attach multiple animals together. And this was particularly useful if you wanted to train up a younger animal to get ready to plow the field. So maybe you had an older one, it was big, it was strong, it was experienced, it knew what to do, but it was going to retire soon, so you wanted to train a younger one with it. So what you'd do is you would yoke the two animals together, and then the bigger one would basically drag the smaller one around with it until the younger one learned what to do. And so what the passage is saying here is what um, believers should not be doing is connected, yoked, attached to unbelievers in a way that where there's going to be a mismatch of power, where you're going to get dragged around like the older animal, the, the stronger animal, drags around the younger animal. And so this idea of a mismatch of power within the yoke, within the partnership, is really key in the, in the passage. It's more obvious in the original language than it is in our English translation. I'm not sure what it's like in the Creole translation. Um, but that's going to be important as we go through the rest of the talk. This idea of a mismatch of power. Now, a second verse that helps us understand this passage more clearly is verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So the temple of God is a building where people worship God. And an idol is a thing where people worship a God, so a small g God. So both of them are places of worship. But this is a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer to the rhetorical question, what do these two things have in common, is uh, nothing. The worship that happens at these two places has nothing in common. And so this theme of worship starts to enter the passage and it's a theme that continues on. Now, it's probably worth talking about worship. What do we mean when we talk about worship? Here's a helpful definition from me. Well, hopefully it's helpful anyway. So we can worship God or a God, uh, you know, small g God, or we can, worship, we can even worship a person or even a thing or an idea. But when you're worshiping something, you're giving it reverence, adoration, and devotion. Reverence being the sense that you're in awe of it. You know, this thing is greater, more significant, more important than me. Adoration in the sense that we give it our heart and our emotions. We love this thing deeply. And devotion in the sense that we commit resources and energy and time and finances to this thing. That's what worship is. We can direct worship towards all sorts of things, not just towards God. And so then in the second part of verse 16, they make it even clearer. They say, well, for we are the temple of the living God. So Christians don't just worship in a building, a church building like the one I'm recording this talk in right now. Actually, followers of Jesus can worship God anywhere, anytime, whether you're by yourself or with other people. But it's a completely different style of worship to what we call idolatry or false worship. And this is the theme that continues through. So when it's talking about separation between believers and unbelievers, when it's talking about not being yoked together, not being connected together, it's not talking about who you talk to at work or um, you know, who you hang out with at school. It's talking about um, who we worship and how we worship. 
Now, these days, oh, now let's talk about idolatry a little bit more. In, Paul has a, a definition of idolatry in another letter that he wrote, uh, the book of Romans, which can be helpful. So Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he's talking about some, you know, when humans went wrong at some point in the past. And it went way off the rails. And he said at that point, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. This is a pretty helpful um, way to understand idolatry, idol worship. We believe that God created everything. Everything in the universe is created by God. And so when we look at a mountain or an amazing forest or a beautiful waterfall um, or animals or people, the best thing that God created was people, uh, we can deeply appreciate these things. We can respect them. Uh, we, we, can, we can love seeing them. We can love interacting with them. Uh, we can enjoy them. And all that's a, that, that can be really appropriate. What we don't do, though, is we don't worship these things that God has created we don't give them high levels of reverence and adoration and devotion. We direct our worship towards God who created all these things. It's a logical thing to do. Why would you worship the, the created thing when we can worship the one who created all of it? Also, we don't worship things that we ourselves have created. So we shouldn't worship art or music or buildings or ideas. Again, we can deeply appreciate these. They can be extremely useful in life. We can respect them. And they can be fantastic things. But we don't need to worship them. They don't need to replace God. They shouldn't replace God. And actually, when that happens, things can go wrong. Now, for the Corinthians, uh, the original receivers of this letter, idolatry was often directed towards a statue, something that people had carved, um, usually out of wood, um, and then people will gather around and worship around that statue. Now, in our city, the city of Melbourne, there's not a lot of that going on. Um, there's, a, there's a bit you can drive around and occasionally see a carved idol or a, you know, a, a, a statue, something like that. It's not that common, though. However, that doesn't mean that we don't have idolatry in our city or in our culture. We've got tons of it. Because if we think of worship as putting high levels excessive levels of reverence, adoration, devotion into something. We've got heaps. There's idolatry happening in gyms, uh, at concerts. Um, what, you know, remember them? They'll come back at some point. Uh, you know, on Instagram and Facebook posts, uh, in people's big new houses, in their fancy new cars, in people's romantic relationships, uh, in exam scores, happens at the MCG, um, family photographs, ex you know, expensive weddings. There's idolatry all over the place. And when we get into idolatry and we, we start to pursue that in our lives, it can actually start to damage our own life and it can damage the lives of the people around us as well. And when an entire culture starts to indulge in idolatry, in, in a particular type of idolatry, it can start to damage the entire culture. And the first people to lose when that happens is usually the poor and the vulnerable people in that particular society. Now, we could do you know, an, an entire year of talks on the different sorts of idolatry that can happen and, and you know, talk about it in all sorts of detail. But what I'm going to do is just quote from a book called, uh, well, a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. Uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in America, 
And he talks in this book, there's a section on idolatry, and he talks about how idolatry can damage our lives. And he just dot points a bunch of different areas and quickly shows how it can be a problem when we put a created thing at the center of our life, when the best thing to do is put God, the one who created us, who knows us perfectly and loves us perfectly, at the center of who we are, at the center of our lives. So what I'm going to do is just read these um, dot points out. You might go, whoa, I've got questions about that. I want to think more about that. And I guess I'm just going to say, that's good. Uh, I'm not going to get into the detail of it in this talk, but I'm hoping that you'll be able to pursue these topics in more detail, particularly the ones that are, I guess, hitting you where you're at at the moment. So here's a few quotes from Tim. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to escape strategies by which you will avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life on work and career, you will be a driven alcoholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop depression. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self left of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life on religion and morality, which is different to centering your life on a relationship with Jesus, you will be proud and righteous and cruel. If you don't live up to your own standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Now, most of the things that I've just mentioned there are actually good things when they're in their right place. They can be great things when they're in their right place. But when we start to worship them, then they can be destructive to us and the people around us. So here's the question that you need to ask yourself in response to today's passage. Are you in any mismatched relationships that are pulling you into idolatry? It might be a one-on-one -on -one relationship or it might be a connection you have with a group of people. All sorts of relationships. It could be a romantic relationship. It could be a work relationship, friendship, family. This could happen in all types of relationships. And the person or the people in that relationship may be deliberately pulling you towards idolatry or they may just be doing it accidentally. Deliberately in the sense that, you know, your romantic partner may be wanting you to... Um, uh, you know, put sex above commitment. 
or a, uh, you know, your boss might be wanting you to put uh, money above people. And they're, they're, they're overt about that. They're certain, that's what they want you to do. And they're telling you about it and they're putting pressure on you, on you to do that. But sometimes idolatry just happens accidentally. As I was reading those quotes from Tim Keller, you might have been thinking, oh, actually, I think I've got a bit of an idolatry problem in that area or that area. And it's not like you set out to do it. It's like, I'm going to idolize that or that. You just sort of slip into it because that's part of our culture. That's what a lot of people do. And so a lot of this will be just the case that people aren't necessarily wanting you to be getting into false worship. It's just that we're doing what everyone does and we just sort of slip into it. If you do think that you are in a relationship or relationships where there is a mismatch of power and you are getting dragged into idolatry, then you need to make a change. There needs to be some separation there between you and that other party. Because I would argue that verse 14, 15, 16, 17 and chapter 7 verse 1 all speak of the need for separation between unbelievers and believers when it comes to this issue of worship. But I want to make it clear that I don't think that means that you just have to cut those people off and never speak to them again. If there's abuse going on in the situation, possibly that would be appropriate. But I think in most situations, it just means there needs to be a change to the relationship. The power needs to move so that you're not you're powerless in the situation or, or getting dragged around. There needs to be a renegotiation as to how that relationship is working. And there's a good possibility you can stay in a friendly, positive relationship with those people. So, if you're watching today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Uh, hopefully I've convinced you that uh, we do want you around and we don't want to just push you away. But hopefully I've also convinced you, or at least shown you the issues with idolatry and demonstrated that idolatry is bad for all of us, not just for Christians. And the best way out of idolatry is to put your trust in Jesus. I'm going to assume that because you're watching today, you're at least a little bit intrigued about Jesus. You've got some sort of interest in him. You're seeking him in one way or another. And I just want to encourage you to keep doing that. Uh, you might like to get out the New Testament, first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and start reading about the life of Jesus. Best place to start. Also, we'd love to help you. Why don't you get to stjohnsdc.org.au and make contact with us. We would love to work with you on what your next step is in seeking a relationship with Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus already, this idea of being separate from unbelievers when it comes to issues of worship is important. And I think one we need to take really seriously in, in our part of the world here in Melbourne. I just get the sense that probably we just go, go with the flow too much and we just sort of buy into our cultural idols far too easily. But when we do, and when we are seeking to be getting that separation and make those changes, please don't be a jerk about it. There's no cause for that. And I'd encourage you to just rewind a little bit uh, to verse 6 of the same chapter that we've been looking at today, where after they've described all the hardship they've gone through in order to share the good news of Jesus, they talk about the attitude with which they brought that good news. 
And they said, here's the attitude that we brought it in. In purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. And as we seek to make those changes in our life and to maybe renegotiate some of the relationships we have, I hope that we can have that attitude and be seeking the help of the Holy Spirit when we do it. Let's pray to finish. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us despite all our failures. And we are sorry for the times that we have worshipped created things rather than our loving creator. Please help us to put you at the centre of everything. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.